Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward, and in our first segment, I take you on a whirlwind tour of the fall 2015 gathering of the Association for the Study of Connecticut History. You'll hear part one of my two-part program, Speed Dating a History Conference. And in our second segment, Connecticut Explored editor Jennifer LaRue revisits her fall 2015 story about the Musical Club of Hartford with three members of the club who share their music, tell how they came to be members, and what the 125-year-old club is all about. It's Connecticut history that's music to your ears on Episode 3 of Grading the Nutmeg. For those of us lucky enough to make our living in the history field, one of the great parts of our job is going to history conferences. It's a chance to catch up with old friends, meet newcomers to the field, and spend a day finding out what's new about the past. As the State Historian of Connecticut, I think the best of all history conferences are those of the Association for the Study of Connecticut History, or ASH. At last November's ASH conference held at Central Connecticut State University, the focus was on Connecticut's role in World War I. Scholars, museum professionals, history educators, reenactors, and other Connecticut history lovers made it a day of great discoveries. For those who've never been to a history conference, I thought it might be interesting to let you sit next to me and listen to some of the talks. I've edited a few down to their essence in a two-part podcast I call Speed Dating a History Conference. In part one, you'll hear Catherine Dykeman of Mystic Seaport tell us how World War I weapons technology gave a short-term boost to New England's declining whaling industry. Award-winning educator Carolyn Ivanoff outlines the war industry boom in Bridgeport, while Heather Monroe Prescott of CCSU talks about Connecticut women physicians' role in the war. I'll share a lunch conversation I had with Professor Matt Warshower of CCSU about a new course he's developed. And in between segments, you'll hear songs from World War I by historian performer Rick Spencer, who gave one of the conference's highlight presentations. It's a whole day of history in 20 minutes. So comb your hair, check your makeup, and let's go Speed Data History Conference. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me every summer. a lot of new forms. 
forms of warfare, tanks, submarines, uh, flamethrowers, uh, gas canisters, uh, machine guns, all sorts of new technologies that made the war more deadly than uh, any previous conflict. But surprisingly, this new technology of warfare relied on a very primitive commodity called whale oil. Uh, in the 20th century, the American whaling industry was in decline, but the demand for uh, whale oil sparked by the war temporarily slowed American whaling's demise. Whale oil maintains its viscosity at extremes of temperature, but also at extremes of variance of pressure. So now that we're developing instrumentation that's going to be used under the sea or in the air, that pressure quality becomes important as well. Uh, whale oil also doesn't freeze, which makes it uh, the cold weather lubricant of choice for almost all machinery. Glycerin from whales was essential in the production of nitroglycerin. But more importantly, it was a key ingredient in cordite, a smokeless, low-explosive propellant, and that replaced gunpowder in rifle cartridges and artillery shells. The increased uh, political military significance of whale oil resulted in a shift in the relative shares of total global whaling. So in 1913, American whalers were bringing in about 3% of the global whale oil supply. But by 1916, it's up to 12%. Unfortunately, this renewed demand for whale products came too late for New London, Connecticut's largest whaling port. In the 19th century, New London had been second only to New Bedford in the size of its fleet, about uh, um, 280 vessels, 1,100 voyages, mostly two years or so. New London vessels held the records for the longest voyage, the first steam-powered whaler, you know, in the U.S., the largest whale ship ever sent out. But when the Great War began, New London's whaling days were just a memory. So while World War I did not revive the New London whaling industry, it did manage to save a vessel that has become a Connecticut icon, the Charles W. Morgan. In 1913, the Morgan was retired from whaling after 33 successful voyages. Captain Benjamin Cleveland, a very frugal Yankee from Edgartown, purchased the old Morgan for $6,000. Cleveland may have been an unlikely business genius, but he had an eye, as the British say, for the main chance. He had often voyaged to the southern Atlantic and Indian Oceans, where he hunted whales and elephant seals in company with the New London whalers. Cleveland decided to take the Morgan to Kerguelen <coughs> Island. This wild and windy piece of volcanic rock was a lonely outpost on the edge of the Indian Ocean. And he figured that nobody else was interested in it, and there wouldn't be mines and submarines on patrol and all of those kinds of things. Despite the war's hazards and all the dangers and discomforts of working in the cold and windy southern ocean, the Morgan returned with a cargo of 200 barrels of sperm oil and 1,100 barrels of elephant seal oil. At this point, sperm oil was selling at 75 and a half cents a gallon, up from 32 when he bought the boat. So based on the wharf prices, his cargo was worth more than $21,000. Cleveland's $6,000 gamble had paid off. The demand for whale products in the Great War did not reverse American whaling's downward slide. It only provided a temporary respite. But most importantly, American whalers helped supply the Allied powers with the raw material that proved to be vital for victories. lost a true sweetheart. Some of us lost a dear dad Some lost their mothers, sisters and brothers Some lost the best friend they had It's time they were 
stopping this warfare if women and children must drown. Many brave hearts went to sleep in the deep when the Lusitania went down. I want to talk about Bridgeport 1915 and what happens in one year that literally transforms Bridgeport, not only the labor movement, which spreads all over the Northeast and nationwide and garners national attention, but it transforms the physical landscape of a city. Now, look at this map. This is from MapWorks, and you can see Bridgeport still has many rural areas. And these areas would be gobbled up because housing is at such a premium. Bridgeport is a boom town. Population would go from 100,000 to 150,000 in a matter of um, two or three short years. UMC was a sprawling facility on the other side of Boston Avenue. It was huge. It went from 143 buildings in 1914 to 313 buildings up here, manufacturing munitions. This plant was built in about five months. Comparing the map before to this more contemporary map, look at the way it's filled in with the houses. And um, you can see the plant still up there on off Boston Avenue. And um, this is the east side. And um, this is more what it's like today, although some of the um, lots are empty because of the urban blight and they're taking down houses. Keep the home fires burning While your hearts are yearning Though your lives are far away They dream of home There's a silver lining Through the dark clouds Owen Dyer bill passed by Congress in July 1918 gave members of the Medical Corps the same rank as other military officers. But the military refused to give women physicians the same opportunity. The military grudgingly offered women physicians positions as contract surgeons, that is civilian consultants, without the benefits of military rank, pay, or status. For some women physicians this was sufficient. Nationwide, about 108 women served as contract surgeons for the U.S. Army. So 2,200 signed up and 108 were actually used. These women had high hopes that their patriotic service would lead to a regular commission and career in military medicine, hopes that were soon dashed once armistice was declared. Other women physicians, though, considered contract service a separate and unequal status since it meant giving up their practices with no rank or promotion while in service, no bonuses or pensions when they returned, and if injured, no disability compensation. So instead, these women physicians decided to volunteer with the Red Cross 
or other non-governmental organizations in Europe. By the time of the armistice, there were at least 76 medical women serving in this capacity overseas. Now, the service records for Connecticut do not list any women physicians as employed as contract surgeons. So instead of serving as contract surgeons, women physicians from Connecticut served for either the Red Cross or a group called the American Women's Hospitals. Jesse Western Fisher, bacteriologist and pathologist from Middletown, served as a pathologist working on gas scan green for the American Red Cross in Beauvais, France. Prior to the war, Fisher had worked with male colleagues without facing gender discrimination. Her wartime experience was a rude awakening. In a letter to a female colleague back in the United States, Fisher recounted the humiliating experiences of American women physicians serving in France. We are not saluted, nor have we any authority. Although some older men were as courteous as at home, younger men were not so kind. Fisher confided she had struck a young U.S. Army Medical Corps lieutenant who made me feel my lack of rank and lamented that the soldiers do not have the proper respect for us. The French officers often mistook the women physicians for army chauffeurs. Fisher advised her friend and all women MDs, quote, to stay in the U.S. and fight for commissions. They need us badly, and if the women will refuse to come without commissions, they will be compelled to give them to us. So rather than being subordinate to male supervision, some women physicians decided to create their own all-women medical units overseas. Any voluntary hospital that was set up overseas had to go through the Red Cross first. Eventually the Red Cross relented and the first American Women's Hospital was set up in the village of Neufmontier, Saint-Armand in July 1918. The um, hospital was run and staffed entirely by women physicians, chauffeurs, and volunteers and nurses. So of the 14 physicians who worked in this hospital, three have Connecticut ties. Ayer J. Manwaring from Norwich, Mary McLaughlin, and then Mary, uh, Mary Louisa um, from Middletown. Dr. Evans and Dr. McLaughlin were both assistant physicians at the Connecticut Hospital for the Insane, now Connecticut Valley Hospital. Dr. Manwaring was one of the first women doctors to practice in Norwich. And the work of this, um, these American women's hospitals, and they were set up in France, they were set up in Serbia, and in Balkan states, both during and after the war. And so their work continued once the war was over because the invading armies had left behind a displaced, undernourished civilian population and um, unsanitary conditions that led to epidemics. And then, of course, there was the worldwide influenza pandemic of 1918-1919 to deal with. The physicians continued to treat civilians in the local villages. They provided vaccines. They led public health campaigns. The dentists provided free, med free dental care and so on and so forth. One French woman described the lady doctors as angels of France miraculously delivered her and the residents of the village from a deadly typhoid fever epidemic. The mayor of Luzancy touted the heroism of the women physicians, declaring they were completing the liberating work of the Allied soldiers by putting, quote, the science of your medicine at the service of our people. In, in April of 1919, the physicians, nurses, and ambulance drivers were awarded honorary French citizenship and received a decoration from the French government equivalent to the Legion of Honor. These accolades from the French led to mixed results for women physicians back in Connecticut. Pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile.
troubles in your old You know, one of the things that happens at a conference that is so valuable is that you get to meet people you often don't sit down with and have just social conversations with. And Matt and I were talking, and he started talking about a new course he's teaching this fall. So, Matt, tell us what you're doing. It's called 9-11 Generation, and it's about looking at uh, how 9-11 has impacted a particular generation of Americans, the kids who were kids when they were you know, 10 years old to, say, 22, 23, when 9-11 occurred. Now, you said you began teaching with a, uh, a kind of hypothesis yeah. about this 9-11 generation. What was that? Yeah. My hypothesis is that, uh, so you think about a fifth grader, fifth or sixth grader. In their world, fifth or sixth grader when 9/11 when 9/11 occurs, they are just beginning to start to explore the outside world and see what is out there. And then this major tragedy occurs, and everything is placed for the rest of their adolescence through the lens of 9/11. What happens? They go through a period of the shadow of total dysfunction. We go to war. Uh, our economy collapses. We have nothing but political dysfunction. And we haven't really seen much different from that. So these kids have grown up with their whole lives with this. And one of my theories is that they have a very different conception of democracy and its worth and its effectiveness than any other generation in American history has ever had. And how has that played out in the classroom? Are you finding out that that hypothesis holds? Uh, yeah, I am. If nothing else, the students are fascinated by the idea of it. And they're thinking about what is a generation. And now most of the kids in this class are post-9-11 generation. So we haven't even figured out what to call them. Does this post-9-11 generation reflect on the 9-11 generation as different than them? That's what we're trying to figure out. And I don't think we've gotten to a place where we can answer that question. But their final project, they are going to go out and with their phones, with their little mini computers they all have, that they all know how to do, they are going to do interviews with people. And they have to interview with, with the same questions. They have to view, interview people from different generations. Then we're going to come back together. And we're all going to watch the documentaries that they put together. And we're going to discuss them. And we're going to say, what did we find out? I'm at the total beginning of this, but I'm fascinated by it. When you did your midterm exam, yeah. you had a set of questions. What did you do? So I've been actually very heavily influenced in the process of working on the new Connecticut Social Studies Frameworks that what we should be doing is about inquiry, inquiry, inquiry. And so what I decided to do was ask these students a very simple question. What are the three most important things you've learned in this class? I don't want your opinion of this, I want your perspective. So, which means that you have to provide some evidence for why you think these things are most important. And then I finally said, would you please provide me with suggestion for what we should study more? And the essays are the single best essays I have ever received from survey level class in 19 years, I think that they are better than some of my mid to upper level history courses, essays. What makes them different? And in order to answer the question honestly, they had to already know the material. They couldn't answer the questions without knowing the material. So I'm getting at 
whether they know the material. It's just in a different way, and it makes it way more personal for them. It required them to engage in some analysis and figure out why do they believe these things are the most important, as opposed to just listing things back that I've taught them over the course of the semester. And do you think that sets them up for this final exam, oral history generations? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go back to the conference. This All is great. Right. Matt Warshower, thanks much. You bet. Johannes Brahms composed that, his clarinet quintet opus 115, in 1891. That same year, a small group of young women in Hartford, Connecticut, gathered to form a club to share their serious interest in music. The Musical Club of Hartford, as they would call it, gave women, and eventually men, a forum for studying, performing, listening to, and appreciating live music among like-minded people. Of course, in 1891, there was no way to listen to music other than live and in person. Remember, radio wasn't invented until the late 1890s, and radio broadcasts didn't come along until the 1920s. Likewise, while the phonograph was invented in 1877, records and record players weren't widely available to the public until the early 1900s. So, to hear live music in the late 19th century, you had to attend a public or private performance of some kind. The late 1800s were already a club-happy time in Hartford and other American cities, so it wasn't unusual for a group of people sharing a common interest to band together, so to speak, to explore and enjoy that bond. But the six founders of the Musical Club of Hartford might be surprised and perhaps humbled to know that the club they started has endured and in fact now celebrates its 125th anniversary. To mark that occasion, I sat down with three current musical club members who shared with me their thoughts about the club, the music they share, and the organization's long history and traditions. Here's what Linda McGugan, Ginny Allen, and Michelle Duffy had to say as we gathered around Michelle Duffy's kitchen table one morning this autumn. The music you'll hear was recorded at recent musical club performances.
My name is Ginny Allen. I've been a member of the club for 40 years, and I play the violin and the viola. I'm Linda McGugan, and I've been a member of the club since 1980, I think, and I'm a piano player. Mm. I'm Michelle Duffy, and I've been a member for only 15 years, and I play the piano. I'm um, not a professional musician. I was a librarian, and so now I've come back to music. I was a music major in college, but I think all of us have different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was a performance or a music major in college and then got a master's in performance, but never really wanted to have a performing career. I just like to play. So I've been a piano teacher, but not being a string player, I think string players have more outlets because they can join a community orchestra. Mm -hmm. Pianists would have fewer. Yes, that's actually true. As the, as the yeah. one string player here, I can speak to that. Yeah. Yeah. I am a member of a community orchestra, Connecticut Valley Symphony Orchestra, so that's based in Hartford. However, orchestral playing is very different from either solo playing, me doing a sonata with piano, or being a part of a string quartet or other small ensemble. And so preparing for and performing in a musical club concert just opens um, a whole new world, really, in the way that I am personally challenged mm -hmm. to keep practicing and keep my performance level up. Um, my career was as a nurse, so being able to play music is a, a saving grace when you've had one of those horrible days at work where you come home and you just think, oh, I'm so tired, why am I doing this? If you get your instrument out and play, either on your own or at a rehearsal or with a small group. It just um, revives you in such a wonderful way. There we were suddenly retired, um, both of us at the same time, kind of looking around, thinking, well, what are we going to do now? And even though we lived here for 20 years, we'd never heard of the Musical Club of Hartford and ended up at one of their concerts one day. And the, the membership is just wonderfully inclusive. There are all kinds of opportunities to uh, be on the many different committees and contribute to the club. So it, it's, um, it's really been a wonderful experience for both of us. This fall... We've had about 15 new members join really? just in the you know month and a half since we've started our meetings. We started uh, in late September. And so it's been really very encouraging to see um, all of these new members. And many of them are, uh, we have family memberships now. And so we've gotten many of those this fall. So I, I think the future is good for Musical Club. And of course, mm -hmm. this has been a great year for adding members, both because of the really great publicity that has been going on, but also because of our 125th anniversary. And so there's kind of a spark. I think mm -hmm. among members, we're feeling renewed excitement about the club. And that probably communicates itself to people we know. And we have these different kinds of members, as we've already said. There's the performing members who are so vitally important, obviously, you can't have a program without performers. But the non-performing members are equally important because with 
them, our audience numbers are kept up, and also some of the non-performing members are stepping forward and taking on committee assignments. And the founding women of the club set up such an amazing structure over those early years of, of um, how do we make this group work? And the committee um, structure of this group is just amazing. I was not very tuned into the history, but I became president of musical club a year and a half ago now, and so I thought I should become more informed about the history. So I pulled out The Pursuit of Music, and that's where I saw the list of performers who have been guests of Musical Club, or brought to Hartford by Musical Club for a more broad audience. And I was really surprised by the eminence of some of these names and impressed, and I, it gave me a new reason to be proud of Musical Club. Mm -hmm. I think I thought of it more as kind of a quaint gathering of, <laughs> of musicians, and this made me realize what an important force Musical Club could be. We went through the archives, our files that are held at the Connecticut Historical Society, and pulled out actual programs where the guest artists or performers um, signed the front of the program. And it was just an amazing discovery. Uh, Pablo Casals, uh, a whole list of other people who've, um, whose autographs we had because they performed for us. Marian Anderson, a lot of very well-known and famous names. What about the camaraderie of the club? It was always a place when I did perform or meet people, they were always very warm and supportive. I mean, people just are... Um, they love music, and they, they're generous spirits. Mm. So it's, I think, very encouraging, and so we have that sense of camaraderie with each other because of that spirit. What kind of music do you gravitate toward? We play music up through the 21st century, mm -hmm. but it tends to be mostly in the classical vein. It's not pop, for sure, mm -hmm. um, although we are trying to expand it to jazz. Okay. and welcome jazz performers. And, and what's the goal there? Just in recognition that jazz is a serious uh, musical art form. We like to hear all kinds of music that's good, and jazz is part of that. And we're welcoming of all people who want to come, members, if they want to join, but if you're a non-member, you can come to a program for only $5. Uh, that's an uh, hour and a half of music for $5 is a pretty good deal. There's always that need to bring in new people to any organization. Young musicians seek us out and welcome the opportunity to perform for the same reasons that we have for performing. But we do support young talent and we have high school competitions and then we have a recital that actually is on a Sunday of the winners of the high school competitions in pianos and winds and brass and vocal um, and we make 
expand that to jazz too. That's another thing we're considering. We also have some money that Evelyn Bono Stores left the club to support uh, scholarships for advanced students in colleges in Connecticut, piano students. And so we audition those students and then have a recital that includes the ones who have won scholarships for that money. So we do support uh, and encourage the development of young talent. about the musical club of Hartford's history, including the club's role in bringing singer Marian Anderson to Hartford just before she achieved national and international fame in the fall 2015 issue of Connecticut Explored. I invite you to visit ctexplored.org to read the full story. And for more information about the musical club of Hartford and programs related to the 125th anniversary, visit musicalclubofhartford.org. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Catherine Dykman, Carolyn Ivanoff, Heather Monroe Prescott, Matt Warshower, and Rick Spencer from our speed dating segment, and Linda McGugan, Ginny Allen, Michelle Duffy, and Walter Mayo of the Musical Club of Hartford. On the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, we'll find out what makes Bristol's American Clock and Watch Museum tick, and what's brewing with the Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation's Making Places Project, the Trust's effort to put the spotlight on Connecticut's historic mill buildings. You can subscribe to the Grading the Nutmeg podcasts on iTunes or at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.com to read stories featured in Grading the Nutmeg and to subscribe or purchase current or back issues of Connecticut Explored, visit connecticutexplored.org.